0: Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am absolutely thrilled to be here with Mark Lilla, who is a deep and broad thinker, someone who is a scholar of the humanities at Columbia, as well as a public intellectual. He writes on thinkers that are close to my heart, Franz Rosenzweig, Walter Benjamin, Martin Heidegger, Leo Strauss. Um, He's got a background in the Italian philosopher Giambattista Vico and um, more recently he's made a name for himself in the public sphere commenting on liberalism and the threats to liberalism and uh, I'm looking forward to a wide ranging conversation on the conflict and the possible conflict resolution between religion and politics and uh, romanticism and anti-romanticism. So welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Let me start with a very broad question. Um, As someone who has devoted your life to the study and teaching of the humanities, what do you think is the value of the humanities at a personal level, at a cultural level, and at a national or political level? And Has your view on the purpose of the humanities or humanities education changed over the long arc of your career as a scholar and teacher?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the striking things about talking about the humanities in the United States is that on the one hand, you actually have to argue for it, yeah, Um, and it's it's not just taken for granted uh, that to be a cultivated person you ought to be familiar with certain things and not only that but that uh, the tradition in the humanities is uh above all an opportunity to ask yourself about what matters in life but of course if you go to bookstores or go to the library you'll find books that are defenses of the humanities right and uh you know the very large claims being for, put for them, like uh, like a new toothpaste or something like that, that you'll be a letter, better lawyer or a better businessman or a better decision-maker. And uh, I don't know of another country in which one does that or, or has to do that. And so uh, the answer to the question ha- is, uh, you might say, regime-dependent, uh, that... Um, That To ask that question in Germany, say, is very different than asking it in the United States. And so uh, one faces a kind of democratic indifference or suspicion of non-scientific, non-technological learning. And so one has to find a way to make a case that might not be uh the case that has convinced me that is that that drew me into the humanities so uh it's an unusual situation uh that we're in uh you know i think the real answer to the question for example why should we have a core curriculum is louis armstrong's answer when he was asked about what jazz was and he said if you have to ask you'll never know Um, and i guess that's uh that's my real answer to the question
0: does that mean that there is an instrumental purpose, and it's just difficult to put into words? Um, it's a more intuitive thing? Or are you saying something akin to what Heidegger says in his later writings, which is that technological thinking is itself the problem, and we need to cultivate ways of relating to endeavors in our life that are not instrumental. And so humanities at its best, sort of is a reprieve from instrumentality in contradistinction to science or social science, um, you know, STEM, et cetera, where, where the value is something more direct.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I would not be so melodramatic about it. There's, uh, I, I happen to have spent a lot of time with Heidegger again last fall, and uh, there is something of the drama queen in him, uh, I have to say, uh, especially uh, later later in his writing. Um, no you 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 can separate two questions one is what should my purposes be and the other is how is it possible to achieve those purposes in the best way and uh, technology and modern science can offer answers to the second question and they can't answer the first question now you can you know have a nostalgic sense that yes we once lived in a world in which these things were not separated that we lived in a world um, where everyone read aristotle and didn't have a sense that the, the questions of the ends of life and morality were separate from um, uh, scientific questions and uh, technological means and you know you can have that debate about whether there ever was a, a time or rather there are just examples of that kind of thinking in Aristotle, say, or uh, in St. Thomas and Maimonides and so on. But I would just distinguish them and say that you know what, what we lack uh, uh, or are not as practiced at is thinking about what's worth wanting. And so when every once in a while I I'd give a little speech to the assembled students in the core curriculum at Columbia, and I say essentially that, that the real uh, opportunity you have when uh, you're at the university is not to find out how to get what you want, but to figure out what's worth wanting. And once you put it that way, it's extraordinary how students respond in my experience.
0: I resonate deeply with that. And I suppose we're never done with the question of what's worth wanting. And that keeps us coming back for more and more often to the same books. Yet you also mentioned something about regime dependence. And when I think of American culture, especially today, I think that people do want to answer that question, but they don't necessarily find it obvious that they're going to get the answer to that question what's worth wanting by reading a 2000 year old book or even a 100 year old book. It seems like and I I don't mean to be sort of a kids these days you know snob, but it seems like people get answers to those questions from political activism. They get it from fundamentalist religion, and they get it from new age communities and cultures and online cultures that seem to have a shorter shelf life. So, um, are you a pluralist as to the where a person can turn to to get uh, help? figuring out where they should go to, to think about a contemplative and meaningful life? Or do you have a sense of the superiority of the humanities um, or the excellence and nobility of the humanities relative to sort of the other options, um, some of which we might say are junk food, you know, if we wanted to sort of emulate the Hannah Arendt um, approach that sort of judging is is an important function of thinking. And so we shouldn't shy away from sort of telling it like it is
1: well i'm definitely a pluralist uh the only thing i would uh dissent from a bit is you're including political activism into there uh, because political activism if it's to be um, healthy and meaningful has to be driven by a sense of what matters in life it's not that that activity is somehow going to reveal it to you but, uh, of course, th- th- there are many ways to think about these questions or to train yourself somehow to um, sort of order your soul and your habits. And I'm thinking of a kind of uh, you know, spiritual exercise that might put you in a position to see those things more clearly. And certainly religious traditions um, provide uh, ways of Of doing that and you know it's very easy to if um, you've ever been involved with a curriculum to think that the history of ideas in human life is to be placed somewhere along this timeline on a curriculum and but of course the people you study in this curriculum did not themselves think of think that they were above all contributing to the humanities Uh, they were thinking about certain issues they were exploring them they were uh, exercising their imaginations uh, in literature and art they uh, were exploring themselves and so it's so easy to make the humanities a fetish uh, and thereby uh, misunderstand uh, what the, the the people you study and think about and use to think yourself were were really about, and so these books are are simply tools. And by tools, I I, I don't mean in any uh, technological sense, because we're talking about finding out what's worth doing, not having tools so we can get what uh, we think is worth having, but. It's the experience, I think, not just of reading these books privately, but uh, of being in a dialogical situation in a classroom with a good teacher, uh, that it's in that work and conversation that one begins to advance in one's thinking Uh, about fundamental matters it's very difficult when you're 18 years old just to jumpstart yourself there are there are people who are like that and at a very early age uh, are are, are driven by these uh, uh, by these questions and uh, seem to be able to think about them independently but in an age of mass education uh, it's got to happen I think in relation To not only a book but uh, in relation to a kind of pedagogical experience that prepares you to go on the rest of your life and open up these books and um, use them to explore and expand yourself and discover things and all the rest how do we design
0: in our ideal scenario a university system or an educational system, maybe it doesn't have to be the university, that places the premium on that pedagogical experience. As someone who did a PhD, or I guess in England it's a DPhil, at Oxford, which was very self-directed, I had a great relationship with my advisor, but I wouldn't say that the focus there was on pedagogy. Um, And that's also graduate school. But especially as you consider a path in academia and things have probably changed a bit, you know f- from my generation. There's a real emphasis on publishing publishing quick and publishing in prestigious places as a not necessarily as opposed to, but um, potentially in conflict with cultivating the pedagogic patience needed to dwell with the text, facilitate those dialogical encounters in oneself and in one's students. And it doesn't seem when you take a survey of professors in the humanities or even the social sciences that the ones that rise to the top always correlate with the ones who have this sort of approach that you described and that I you know feel is a tremendous gift. But um, so is is there a problem in incentives or like is Publisher Parish good? How do you how do you think about the role of sort of the research university? Um, relative to what you described, which seemed to me more about like soul craft, if you will.
1: There's an interesting debate about this. I mean, I've, um, after spending a number of years in continental Europe, um, uh, I became convinced that uh, if only we could introduce students in high school uh, to... uh, some great works that got them thinking deeply about themselves and uh, and how they should live their lives but then it would be possible just to specialize in the university as as Europeans do but you know Alan Bloom makes the argument that that's wrong he he says that in fact in high school you're not ready to do that really um, and that it's a good thing that we put that off in fact what we do in high school is uh, you know, Train people to be Americans. Um, we uh, train them to cooperate with each other, to be a good team player, to work on the homecoming float, and put out a yearbook, and all those sorts of things, and play sports. Our way of making uh, our way of making American Democrats and citizens, and we put off the education for later. So I'm um, of two minds about when this should happen, uh, but. You know, uh, the fact is that even when they arrive in high school in continental Europe, students are simply more so- sophisticated and culturally aware than uh, than Americans are. But anyway, uh, now what what uh, I've been thinking about is the advantage of reestablishing what used to exist in a lot of universities, which was uh, and, and t- does exist in some German universities or used to, and that is... Uh, a distinction between the teaching staff and the research staff. And I'm not convinced that when it comes to certain subjects and teaching certain students, that your research feeds back into you being a very good teacher at the elemental level. I'm not convinced of that, It's certainly not for teaching students, let's say in the first two years. And so, uh, the un- University of Chicago used to be like that. And when I was teaching at the Committee on Social Thought, there were still people who were legacies from that, older professors who had been hired just to teach in the college, uh, but had never been given appointments in in the university. So that's something uh, worth thinking about, I think.
0: What do you think about the, the prestige element in that distinction? At least... Um... In my experience, the ones who are great researchers tend to have prestige um, relative to the great teachers, at least sort of, you know, a, a great teacher can have a sort of small following, but they don't reach the level of scale as somebody who's sort of more out there, but not necessarily a people person. Is that, is that fine? Is that just a difference in temperament? Or is there something that we should be doing as a culture, let's say, to try to equalize the prestige, or maybe even elevate the prestige of the teacher? I'm I'm now thinking again of Heidegger. I know he was a drama queen, but like before he published Being in Time, as as you know, you know Arendt was describing the rumors of of Heidegger's teaching sort of traveling around through Germany as the most exciting thing, and in some sense it was Heidegger's uh, skill as a as a pedagogue that catapulted him to fame even before *Being in Time* uh, got published. So is—is is it possible to be a Heidegger today? And not—I'm stripping out the the specific politics. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but just in terms of that sort of the the power to make a career on the basis of charismatic love of learning, irrespective of publishing.
1: It's not something that can be planned. It's not that you can tell people that they ought to place more value on things. It's a, it's a magical thing when it happens. I mean, someone has this gift and this desire and runs across students who are open to that. Uh, it's not anything that you can reproduce. What you can do is protect a space within the university where that might be possible. Uh, you know, as you say in sports, uh, um, that way you can be in a position to win and uh, so my greatest concern is that uh, we aren't preserving these little uh, little islands where that can happen or, or start to happen, especially at the beginning of a young person's uh, education. And so I, I'm indifferent to or don't want to gripe about everything else that goes on in the university. But if, if you can create a space where um, some spark flies, and there are people who have an eros for teaching and an eros for learning to speak that kind of language. Then um, that's maybe the most you can you can hope for. Uh, but you know, there are all, all sorts of things in in our culture that uh, distract people from uh, focusing on those. Those sorts of things and and valuing them it comes from living in a democratic, uh, urbanized, pluralistic, materialistic society. You know you can make you can make uh, the whole list, and so uh, you know it's not quite the Benedict option, uh, but uh, you know I'm happy when every year I know there's a half dozen students who will be thinking differently about their lives and taking them seriously for the rest of their lives i mean who else gets to do that i mean you can publish an article about some scientific matter that potentially may lead to a technology that potentially may lead to the extension of someone's life um but but that's all mediated by all sorts of stages but what you can feel immediately is when someone comes alive in front of you and that's tremendously exciting.
0: Was there a moment in your own development where you had a teacher who made your sparks fly and that made you feel like that's what I want to do with my life, I want to be that for others? Speaking personally, I, I feel um, when I was 17, I was a, I was on a trip in Israel, the Bronfen Youth Fellowship, and I had four rabbis uh, as teachers, and I was so moved by that experience of sort of Basically, humanistic learning. It was Jewish texts, but they range from Talmud to you know Kafka and shaikh Ground. I just said, "Wow, I, I could have not had this experience, and it would be irresponsible for me to not try to make something like this experience available for for the others who could just go through life and not even know about this."
1: Mm. So, uh, so do you do teaching?
0: I I teach uh, privately, um, in one on one in small groups. I I like to think of myself as. Uh, <laughs> Uh, trying to return to that older model of the philosopher as tutor, not to put myself on a pedestal, but I, I sort of, I have ambition to, to write longer works, um, works that I don't feel necessarily would fit within the genre of academia. And so while I sort of work on that project, it's it's meaningful for me to also be a, a teacher. And since I'm a rabbi, I, I have the privilege of teaching, Jews and non-Jews, but sort of with a little bit more openness to the spiritual search. I think in in um, the humanities there can be that, and use the word of you know eros. But there's this more ambivalence, I think, around sort of opening up that the emotional and, and you know psyche, aspects of learning, uh, you know, in a place that's sort of framed as neutral or secular. So I feel a little bit more free, but. Um, I was wondering if, sort of, you have any moments in your in your trajectory where a teacher sort of helped you see that that was something that you could do or that you wanted to model.
1: Yeah, it, no, my my uh, experience was uh, less focused, more haphazard, and depended enormously on a lot of luck. Um, I I grew up in a Blue-collar suburb, right at the edge of Detroit, and um, Catholic family. And uh, you know, by the time I became a teenager, the church had changed a great deal from the time when I was a young altar boy and trying to learn a little Latin, to the time when uh, all the nuns took off their habits and were teaching us guitar, uh, which I did, and. Uh, the church became uh, became something else. I learned a very important lesson in life there, which is that if you walk into a room and the chairs are in a circle, nothing good is going to happen and, uh, I, and and so suddenly at this age of about thirteen, uh, I felt there was a kind of I was annoyed about that and clearly there there was something I wanted and i happened to go to a christian rock concert uh, which was held at, at my high school they had, they had someone had rented the gymnasium for that and went with a friend and just to hear the music and on the way out uh, they passed out copies of what probably is the worst translation of the new testament ever made it's called the good news for modern man and uh uh, it, it's very simple and simple-minded it Has drawings in it and all the rest and i took it home and i read until dawn and uh what happened then was not at that moment uh, a religious conversion but there was something opened up inside and i got up and came up for breakfast and my father said what happened to you and i said i don't know uh and from that moment on, I, I I became a kind of searcher, and and at first, what that meant for seven years of my life was being part of a very tight knit uh, uh, Catholic uh, Evangel uh, Pentecostal uh, uh, group, um, the you know the charismatic renewal, the the kind of group that uh, uh, Judge. Uh, Amy Conan, I always forget her last name, Amy Conan, Bryan, is it? Barrett, I'm thinking of William Jennings Bryan, now that's why I keep uh, making that mistake. Uh, She grew up in in, in a community like this uh, uh, at Notre Dame, and uh, the big centers when I was uh, coming of age of the um, charismatic renewal were Duquesne, Notre Dame, and Ann Arbor. And so, uh, during high school I spent most of my time with my religious group and I carried around a um, uh, had uh, Schofield reference Bible which is the evangelical Bible and uh, with all the passages I colored in yellow and blue and I'd walk around preaching in high school and wore a leather cross and had a t-shirt that said property of Jesus so I became a kind of joyful fanatic uh, about these things but i was just yearning for for answers and even more even more what's more important i was yearning for questions i i i, I uh, more questions kept coming to me and i became somewhat addicted to that of discovering new questions to think about and so I started college at Wayne State University because I had to work nearly full time and put myself through and then after two years I got a scholarship to, uh, to go to the University of Michigan uh, with the idea of joining this um, charismatic community and what I discovered was a very hierarchical almost pyramid like uh, organization uh, where people exercise a lot of authority over each other and the kind of open inquiry that I was interested in and was able to conduct with people in my original prayer group the guy who headed it was a was a janitor at a hospital Um, another guy was a manager of a grocery store lots of housewives uh, but we could have open discussions so uh that ended up being a crisis and i ended up leaving the charismatic renewal and progressively losing my faith but that was the jumping off point for Beginnings to study philosophy, and uh, which I started doing on my own, and then uh, ended up uh, after uh, graduate uh, two years uh, getting a master's in public policy at the Kennedy School, thinking I was going to go into government. I got a job on the Public Interest, uh, the journal, and then became a neoconservative journal uh, in in 1980. And I got a different kind of education and teaching, and that was being around New York intellectuals who were not so much a product of the university, but rather of their own reading. And uh, their sense was you have to read everything and know something about everything. And most importantly, you need an opinion on everything. And so being around people like Irving Kristol and Nathan Glazer, and eventually uh, the person I was closest to, Daniel Bell, uh, gave me another environment in which to teach myself and have people to engage with. So it's rather a long answer, but it's a complicated story.
0: I feel uh, that you benefited and we benefit from the variety of influences and the sort of the dissonances felt along the way. This is something that I often feel when sort of reading in a different context. Um, you know, German Jewish emigres to America, like, you know, Arendt or uh, Adorno. And it's also something like um, in the Taubes biography, which you recently reviewed, uh, it was sort of striking to me right away in the introduction, how Taubes himself is the um, the byproduct of so much cultural change, you know, the influence of a uh, Viennese culture, of sort of uh, Hasidic culture, of the uh you know through his long arc like so many different influences and it it's sort of a cacophony and yet there's something beautiful about it because it it creates a singularity or a personality uh we'll get into i think you know i want to touch with you at some point on the sort of the negative lessons we can learn from these <laughs> from these intellectuals like Tobbs and and you know schmidt and heidegger but just brag- bracketing the morality i think you know we can certainly say that the greatness uh, or potential greatness seems commensurate with the ability, either the ability to leave one place for another or perhaps not even having a choice, just being forced to leave. Like Heidegger also grew up, you know, sort of rural Catholic traditional. And I think the fact that he couldn't get rid of that background but also left it is part of what makes him interesting.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I very much agree with that. You know, there is a way in which you can think about these experiences as conversion experiences. Not by that, I don't mean people falling on the ground and shaking all over and handling snakes and things like that. But even in um, the Platonic dialogues, Socrates uses uh, a word uh, that uh, where he talks about turning around, that something happens to you, and you simply turn it's not that you're transformed and get a new life it's that you're walking in one direction something happens and you start moving in another direction but uh there are two kinds of those experiences where you change direction and uh, the one experience is from uh, ignorance or insensitivity to certain questions to a kind of wakefulness uh, to them and uh, setting off to answer some questions. So that can be one you know, uh, corner uh, with a stop sign where you can stop and turn, right? But there's a second one that's of the same sort, but it ends up being a kind of deconversion experience. And that's the moment when you end up having grave doubts about the opinions that you've built up uh, in your inquiries and what you've heard and what you've read and the teachers you've run into Uh, but you have the second and very important experience of confronting your own ignorance and uh, realizing that the premises even on which you were living are false and what happens then is is that people in my experience, turn out one of two ways. Either they become sort of skeptics uh, in the good sense or very aware of their own ignorance and the limits of the human mind and what we can learn, and they go on through life chastened, uh, that they're less deceived. And then there are those who become uh, serial, converters and deconverters, people who hop from one epiphany to another. And in my life, I've seen uh, uh, people who've treated their inner life that way, moving from one sect to another, one belief system to another. And I certainly have seen it in political life. Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, it was a difference in in the circles of neoconservatism that I uh, entered in the early '80s to see that there were people like Daniel Bell and and Irving Kristol and Nathan Glazer who, in fact, uh, in fact, through their experience of having been attached to Trotskyism and then uh, turning away from it, uh, became then sort of uh, inoculated against crazy political passions from then on. And then there was a figure like Norman Horitz and people around uh, him who seemed to skip from epiphany to epiphany and each time write books about all the friends I've lost and how now I see uh, the world right. So um, yeah, uh, it, 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 I, I think that going through the second experience, is, uh, is the really crucial one. Of course, you can't go through a second experience if you don't go through the first, but, but it's in the second that you really uh, can become something else. And you know, as you may remember in Plato's Phaedo, uh, Socrates talks about um, uh, his own sort of intellectual development that he, got, he wanted to know things when he was young about nature and uh, everything just seemed a mystery to him, and then he was told to start reading Anaxagoras, and he starts reading Anaxagoras, who says that uh, everything is mind, and, uh, and he gets very ex- excited about this, but the more he, and it helps him see things, but the more he reads Anaxagoras, he can see that uh, the guy tries to apply his little rule to everything, and, in fact, is a very confused thinker who mixes up all sorts of things. And at that point, he said, uh, what happened is I was threatened by, he coins the term, mythology, which is like misanthropy. You have a bad experience with the human being, and you sort of turn yourself off to the human race because of it. Uh, similarly, you can have an intellectual experience and develop uh, certain beliefs that once they're crushed, rather than learning the lesson and moving on, uh, you sort of throw up your hands and become a kind of hater of reason. And so how you handle that moment when you, uh, when your ignorance is exposed to you is really the crucial moment, I think, that that determines one's intellectual life from then on. That was a beautiful
0: exposition, and it reminded me of a reading of, Heidegger's reading of Plato from the scholar, Mary Jane Rubinstein. I remember when I heard it, I was, it was an aha moment for me. So um, in Plato's cave allegory, I think the the standard reading of it is sort of, you know, it's bad to be in the cave and it's so good to be in the light that you want to return uh, and sort of share that experience with everybody else. And then there's a conflict, but you know, ultimately, um, you, know, you have the upper hand because you have the truth or some, something like that. And then in in Mary Jane's uh, reading of Heidegger's reading, she says, no, the the point isn't to leave the cave. The point is there's the transitional moments from one situation to another. There is no destination. It's not better to be in the cave than inside the cave. It's a life is described as a as a turning or a conversion or a deconversion from one set of, you know one orientation to another. Was sort of no resting place. And now, as I was hearing you recount uh, your your perspective, I was imagining, in fact, the idea, it hadn't occurred to me before, but almost reading of the philosopher as deconverting from the experience of the forms and uh, returning to some kind of desire for social impact, almost like a disillusionment with philosophy. I hadn't, you know, I always read it more as a, this sort of bodhisattva story that, you know, you're enlightened and now you want to share the enlightenment but it's kind of fascinating to think of it as like, I got outside the cave and even there there was something sort of restless or boring about it. And so I had to, actually had to go back. It reminds me of Levinas, you know, Levinas sort of saying that the ethical is takes priority over the,
1: uh, the metaphysical. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, this is something I'm writing about in a book, Um uh, that i've been working on for some years and finishing up now it's called ignorance and bliss and the subtitle is on wanting not to know and in the book i need to copyright this so no one takes it after they listen to this uh, in the book i i i rewrite the allegory of the cave and what i imagine is that uh once the first man is turned around in the cave and discovers that he's been looking at shadows uh, and the stranger who turns him around then starts dragging him up into the light with him resisting uh and then the the platonic story is then you get up into uh, the sunlight and you see the ideas and all the rest And and then uh, the next step is that you turn around and are forced to go back down. And one way of reading that is that uh, by being forced to go back down and explain yourself to other people in the dark, your eyes are not accustomed to the dark, you fall all over things, that uh, you start to learn the limits of what you thought you knew up there and also learn that the thing you most have to learn is about human beings if you're going to somehow uh, help enlighten them. It, uh, it's not just you have to understand what things look like in the light, you have to understand why people resist you and uh, how hard it is to get around in the dark where people don't know how to argue and all, all the rest. Um, so you know, there's a kind of Straussian reading about that where there's a turn to speeches and the great discovery is that um, we never live in the light entirely. We're always in conversation uh, trying to make our way. Um, But uh, I've sort of of imagined the story slightly differently, which is when the man goes up into the light, he's allowed to bring a servant boy. And the servant boy is miserable uh, up in the light. Um, He can't sleep. Uh, He misses his illusionary friends. There's no shade. He knows he'll never discover anything new because he's seen everything that is life has lost its savor. And so when uh, the, the man who's gone up the cave is told to go back down, he tells the young man, well, why don't you stay up here? And the young man says, please take me down. Please, I can't stand it here. This is no way to live and so uh, uh the man starts to take him down and the young boy looks off to the side and sees a door on the way down and he opens it And what he discovers instead is that he's on a seashore and there are a number of boats and he faces the choice whether to get on a boat and spend his life sailing and he does and so that becomes an alternative way of thinking about what the philosophical life is really going to look like, is that you get over the illusion of um, of the final account and find yourself uh, becoming homo viator, as they used to say in Latin, uh, uh, the traveling man, and, and that ends up becoming a kind of very thrilling and at times frightening life
0: I feel like a Marxist might hear that story of the servant boy and sort of especially in sort of our contemporary climate say something to the effect of like of course the servant boy would choose that option you know he didn't have the privilege uh, that the that the other person had and so like if we could just give that servant boy you know the proper, uh, resources, then somehow we could equalize the, the differences in temperament or differences in choice. But if you take, I guess, the opposite approach, which would be something like a Nietzschean approach, then there's just innate differences or innate tendencies between people. And some people are attracted to knowledge and some people seem to be attracted to something else. Um, as a pluralist and as someone who teaches in sort of a democratic society, that Nietzschean perspective tends not to be—it um, <laughs> tends not to be the one that that gets a lot of play. But um, I personally don't think all differences are just reducible to class. I think there there really is, you know, let's say psychological difference. There's some aspect of like nature in us, and so what to do then with the variety? Of ways that people respond to this this thing that for some of us is like the best thing ever um, but for others seems to be a kind of like get me out of your experience
1: yeah well we'll, we'll just to place the emphasis properly um the point of the story is that the real philosopher is the boy not the man who sees the forms and then uh, engages in this project of dragging everyone along to share his vision that the servant boy's been lucky that, that he, he's seen through the uh the illusion of that last account and and reacts against it because there's something inhuman about it and and, and instead makes a real philosophical move which is to uh keep moving and um uh, but, 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 when it comes to, but, but when it comes to different classes uh, of people, I share your view, and, but one needn't think of it in a hierarchical sense, but rather that people are capable of different things and, and also need different things. And uh, it's a kind of snobbery of the intellectual to think that obviously the person who knows more must be in a superior position. That's not necessarily uh, the case uh, at all. And so, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot and writing uh, about in this book, as well, uh, you know, the, the, the whole uh, theological theory of divine accommodation, uh, which is the idea for your listeners, I mean, you know all about this, that um, uh, God has to accommodate the way he deals with us to the fact that we are mortal, limited creatures Uh, Who use language and all the rest and so um, uh, What we see in in the Bible needs often to be read or even in the laws needs to be read allegorically to get the deeper message, but that um, the way in which the Bible uh, anthropomorphizes God and uh, especially and also has to use language to move us and uses rhetorical tricks uh, that uh, uh the reason things are that way is that God is a benevolent God, and he's provided something that will allow people of different capacities and different needs to uh, be able to take away what they can uh, properly. And, uh, of course, there's a great tradition of, of thinking about uh, accommodation, or sometimes it's called condescension in the Jewish and Muslim Traditions, it's not well developed in the Christian tradition. Uh, Certainly, uh, St. Augustine, for example, spoke about the need to read the Bible allegorically and does it beautifully in his interpretation of the book of Genesis at the end of his confessions. Uh, But uh, there's a kind of benevolence in that. And so you need to reach people where they are. And there's no reason why someone who's in a an inferior position with respect to one thing like not having money or not having power or not having brains uh that that they can't be reached and helped and orient their lives well and and be happy in a deep sense i resonate with that very much
0: it um It seems to me like there's a through line between that sort of theological position or even that philosophical orientation and your more recent commentary on sort of politics in the Democratic Party, that one of the things you seem to be urging, um, you know, people involved in movement politics is to be a little bit more accommodating to those who might not sort of talk in the way that they would want uh, or think in the way that they would want, but to try to find like a sort of common cause um, in, in spite of you know a veneer that seems maybe off-putting or something to that effect So I wonder in in terms of like the the pushback that you've gotten on your sort of more you know recent political commentary if you can also locate a theological antecedent there like to what extent is that is this is this debate about sort of how to do politics? just a rehashing of kind of a more ancient theological debate between the accommodationist view of God and that sort of fire and brimstone view of God. <laughs> you know, idolaters get purged and so on.
1: Yeah, I really haven't thought about it. Um, certainly, the question of rhetoric is is, is an old one. And um, rhetoric was can be thought of as the enemy of, of philosophy uh, of reason um, or it can be thought of as an art that needs to be learned so that you actually know how to reach people and teach people and move them in a way that um, they themselves afterwards would, would recognize as as good and so um, you know, I, I think a train, uh, training in rhetoric would be uh, a training in uh, sort of all all the buttons and, and, and pulleys and levers you have uh, uh, on your soul that someone who speaks can reach. And um, you can think of that as manipulation or also think of making the machine run, run, run well. So... Uh, yeah, c- certainly one of the perverse things about uh, a, a kind of d- democratic prejudices in our time uh, is that uh, by being unwilling to recognize that people have different capacities and needs, and that they aren't just hierarchically ordered uh, from uh, from top to bottom. Uh, That somehow what has happened is that we've come to value uh, formal education and then have to convince ourselves somehow that everyone is capable of that or would be capable of that under the right social settings. And I think there's no reason to assume that. And the deepest thing to question is the idea that um, education is the marker of a – better life or a more fully human human being.
0: I'd love to just switch gears a little bit and um, take note of some of your your work in The Reckless Mind and The Shipwrecked Mind, and also your um, your review of Taubas more recently, Yakub Taubas, all of which uh, are about thinkers that in some sense have a hostility to liberalism that are dangerous in some way whether because of political sort of errors in political judgment or errors in sort of character or some you know correlation between those and at the same time these are people that i think there's a reason why you're turning to them be the, other than just negative example there is a teaching uh, there is a usefulness these are tools that that help you pursue the question of what questions should I pursue And speaking personally, you know I'm a rabbi I wrote my PhD on Heidegger. I think there are parts of Heidegger that are super toxic, but I also find parts of Heidegger incredibly compelling. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of how you square the circle or don't square the circle of like a certain respect for these. European thinkers, with also an aversion to them. Uh, sort of, what do they have to teach us? Why are they dangerous? And what can we learn from the fact that they're both
1: compelling and dangerous? Well, for me, uh, you know, the, the essays I, I've written like like this are, are, are more, I would say, homiletic. That uh, by taking an example of uh, an intelligent person and in most cases serious person who suddenly experiences a kind of political conversion and throws everything over and then watching uh how they cope with the knowledge afterwards that it was a mistake that um, the homily is that well isn't that just like all of us and this could happen to any of us. It's simply more dramatic there. And you can see how it, it's possible for a, a, a passion, uh, and the sources of which are, can be very different, and it becomes most interesting to figure out what's, what's actually behind it, but can make people uh, throw over their reason or instrumentalize uh, some gift they have for some other end and so for me it's not so much whether there's a kind of necessarily a a bacillus in a particular thought that then once it's uh, uh, worked out necessarily will lead to uh, certain bad consequences but rather to pose the question if there are ideas that can be easily Uh, manipulated and misused politically one does have to ask oneself what the thinker was actually attracted to in the original idea that is whether they had purged themselves enough of their own passions and become impartial enough to inquire without something there behind it that's non-philosophical and so these are stories uh, that uh that uh contain for me lessons about uh the need to purge ourselves of certain kinds of passions which can be spiritual which can be political in order to be in a state in which we can genuinely philosophize and You know, what's extraordinary for me about Heidegger's uh, early lectures from the 20s and 30s, uh, which for me are are his best and most exciting works, that uh, you hear both voices often in the same lecture. There's a kind of really inspiring openness to question posing and a kind of courage uh, in wanting to do it and then all of a and then all of a sudden, there's a paragraph that's just a kind of uh, reactionary grumbling about modernity, and so those cases fascinate me, uh, and uh, I think that we're all potentially like that, and um, so certainly, uh, I think it's the case that one requires a great deal of psychological self-awareness about our particular cells not about the psyche in general but about our but ourselves uh, before we get into this business and you know it's it's uh, it's uh, worth remembering that uh, uh, in our universities today uh, students of philosophy do not take classes in self-examination because I guess that can't be reduced and, and reproduced, and you can't write articles about it in books. But the idea that you would have to go through a kind of purging of yourself or self-awareness um, is is just uh, uh, not a thought many people have today. When I think of that example you shared of
0: Heidegger in the 20s, what comes to mind is the dis. The the sort of Jewish teaching, and I'm sure it's in other religious teachings, that sort of the the greater the yetsar hatov, the greater the inclination to do good, the greater the yetsar hara, the equal and opposite desire or urge to do bad. So sort of in some sense the you know the the greater the saint, the greater the fall. The more cultivated you are, the more you you sort of uh, you can't see your blind spots. Um, I don't know if you would accept that on Heidegger, but it it almost feels like the curmudgeonliness or the the grumbling is commensurate with the brilliance. And I'm wondering, I think to disprove that thesis uh, or that observation, one would need to hold up a thinker who sort of has the brilliance of a Heidegger, but without the flaws. Um, When you think of sort of thinkers who were philosophically brave and courageous and have the virtues that you admire, but who are more tempered when it came, comes to sort of protecting themselves from the downside. Who who do you go to for inspiration?
1: Well, two uh, objections to begin with. One is I don't find the word uh, brilliance very very helpful. We would have to talk about what, what what that actually means. But who do I see as examples of this? Well, they tend to be skeptics for whom the question of human nature is primary and who understand that getting a grip on that is a necessary but insufficient condition uh, to understanding anything because we have to understand ourselves as creatures trying to do this we have to be self-aware before we engage in it and so, for me, someone like Montaigne, uh, someone like uh, Rousseau, uh, Socrates himself—I mean, you know—I I, I reread the Platonic dialogues constantly, uh, where uh, there's uh, there's aware, there's uh, an awareness of that. You know, I when I read the p- peripheral works of Wittgenstein, not. Um, uh, the investigations and the Tractatus, uh i i i see something of that going on you know a very serious soul that is also working on himself and working on what it is to be a human being and somehow that's wrapped up with his more abstract thinking about fundamental matters
0: when you take some of the more modern thinkers like heidegger or Khajev or rosenzweig or Schmidt, or, or Arendt, it seems like they do have a theory of human nature, um, is the is the argument that their their understanding of human nature is wrong or flawed, or is it that they lack the appropriate skepticism needed to counterbalance the theory of human nature? In other words, that Socrates had a theory of human nature, but what saved him is he wore his convictions lightly.
1: Yeah. No, I put it a different way that um, it's in understanding human nature that we learn what we have to be prudent. And so the philosophical investigation into our nature is primary because then we have to understand what our faculties do and don't do, what they can and can't do, uh, what they can achieve, how they might mislead us, how other parts of the soul might get in the way of it working, all of that seems to me to be uh, required as training before uh, heading out in your little boat.
0: I'm a fan of prudence, I'm a fan of self-awareness. The counter-argument to those, call them contemplative virtues, is that change, historical change, cultural change, social justice change, you know, doesn't happen because people are contemplative and prudent. It happens because people lack self-awareness and sort of externalize their flaws and their deficiencies to sort of all, all kinds of, you know, violence and and taking action and that sort of, it's terrible in the short run, but sort of in the longer arc, that's how, that's how history moves forward. What What's your rebuttal or how would you re- reframe that sort of classic tension or dialectic between sort of the let's say let's call it the ancient attraction to contemplation and the modern or modernist attraction to sort of move quickly and break
1: things and ask questions later to begin with i'm always baffled by this particular particularly uh, american habit from from what i've seen and that is to associate change is it's to assume that change is always good change and so uh when you hear people saying well we want to teach young people to bring about social change well, from my point of view as a liberal Democrat, uh, I've been experiencing way too much social change <laughs> since 2016 and since before. And all that change uh, has been brought about people who are drunk on the idea that they can change everything. So uh, change can't be an idol. It's just, just it, one can know when things are the same and, and when they are not. And so the only relevant discussion is what aims we are, are, are moving to, one, And two, whether they are attainable given the kind of creatures we are. And I suppose three, given the kind of creatures we are, what things we have to beware. And so it's only by analyzing what the soul is like, the the upshot of uh, understanding what the structure of the soul is, is not necessarily that you pull back and contemplate, but rather that you bring that awareness even to thinking about public and historical matters uh, you only get a purchase on why people are become fanatical and close themselves to reason or develop prejudices or become cruel and indifferent to the sufferings of others is to explore how we're made and um, so even if you live in a world where there are lots of people like that, um, you need this knowledge if you're gonna figure out how to make your your own way, and if you're engaging in politics, how to do it in a way that uh, is beneficial and not toxic. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective.
0: I find it singular and uh, invaluable. And I'm just wondering, in the last you know couple of minutes, if there's any message that you want to share with our listeners. Um, I'm thinking that many of them are seekers, you know, within traditions, but also outside of traditions. They're grappling with sort of how to make sense of um, the pursuit of the good life, while also not letting that sort of take them down all the um, The detours that could that could sabotage themselves or others. So, what um, (laughs) what homily headline do you want to impart as as your farewell?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I can just think of one Italian word: coraggio. So, courage and good luck. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombriant, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with SoulShop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Adkins.